hear me? Can you hear me? I can hear you. You hear me? All right. So we are in this joint. We are back. We are back for the first time. It is the Blackboard, because I think I said, sound like I said Black Boy on the pilot joint. This is the Blackboard <laughs> Jungle, Blackboard Jungle podcast. Um, we are back for the first time, y'all. This is it. We are officially doing our first episode, but the reason we're back for the first time is because we just recorded the pilot and it was terrible and we only let friends and family hear it. So here we are for the first one. And then we fake recorded about 15 minutes before we, we realized. We just fake recorded 15 minutes. Um, and I'm just going to do a quick announcement. I'll probably do something a little deeper before that you will hear or have heard if it plays. But um, again, um, I just got the worst news. Shout out to shout out to Jazz Fly and everything she's done. Um, I just found out she uh, passed away and... Um, it's, it's terrible. Um, I don't have all the news or all the information on it, but, um, you know, whatever it is, um, to my prayers are with her, her family, her friends. Um, and it's, it's kind of screwed up my day. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to push through this and we're just gonna, we're going to carry on. How you been naughty natural? I was gonna say one nickname. It's gonna, gonna hit you with the Beijing King. Nah. But. Oh wow. I've never used. Don't put. See, you gonna put that for the world to hear. That's not even. That's not even an office thing anymore. Yeah. First of all, I don't use Beijing. I just want to be clear. I've never used Beijing. Um, the fact that I keep repeating it makes me sound guilty. So I'm gonna stop. To our knowledge. I'm, no. To our knowledge. Nah. It's all right. Anyway. Um, crazy week. I haven't seen you since Wednesday. Ridiculous week. I'm here. Yes. That's the most I can uh, do. Yeah. Just be physically present, even though I'm kind of like off, you know, Uh, no focus, no attention span. Yeah. It's tough out here. A lot of things going on in the streets. Did you see the thing where the, the old man got pushed? I did. That stumble backwards was crazy. It was, and then he started immediately like bleeding from the ears. It was, just, it was, it was terrible. And not not to make light of it, but just like old people are very delicate. Like they have that delicate skin. So for you to like push someone who's already unstable on their feet, yeah, and to walk away, yeah, as it's being recorded, that's that's what's shocking to me at this point. That like you see the camera, you see you're being recorded. No, they didn't see the camera. Okay, they didn't know that they were being recorded because I think it was a news channel. But in this that day actually, and age, you have to assume you're being recorded. That's why I don't do wild stuff. Like you may not like pull out a wedgie or do anything crazy in the street. Like somebody's gonna catch pull this. Pull out a wedgie, yeah. I've done that a few times. Right. Um I mean, do they care? You think they care? They must not. I, I have to believe that they don't care. Is it I wonder if it's the police unions. I guess like, yo, I got a union, I'm good, I don't really care. Cause that's how people act. We know that for a fact. This is true. Um you know, you have a union. You're like, yeah, I could screw it. I, whatever, whatever happens, happens. You talk to my union, you figure it out from there. But what are the the, the conversations that are going on in these union meetings? What's are, what's in those contracts like that you can operate so violently towards the community that you're supposed to protect and serve? I'm not sure. I don't know, and you know, it's it's crazy. I just know the guy's fall was crazy. Um, we were just talking about this the other day, and you made a funny point that he didn't have any melanin in the skin, um, and that didn't break the fall. Melanin does does help with falls. Um, it's it's not a scientific fact, but it's I think it's fact. it's a black fact. You got melanin because there's a, a thing on Instagram I was telling you about with two old ladies who started <laughs> racing, and they literally fell within two steps, and all they did was laugh. Not saying that you know, not making fun of his situation at all, but I'm just saying you know, a little melanin. Goes a long way in these streets. Breaks the fall. Yeah, man. I'm sure Michael Jackson fell a whole bunch of times, and he took them to falls a lot better when he was dark skinned than when he was light skinned. <laughs> no, <laughs> you don't think so? I think he did. I think he he looked a little more fragile as he got lighter. Okay. You don't think so? <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't, I could be wrong. Might have been a combination of things. Yeah, D you know Rose what? Being one of them. I don't want no problems with the Jackson family though. I ain't got no money. Right. Um. So. <laughs> There was that, a um, whole bunch of protests going on. A lot. New York was enlivened, you know. Uh, 
in a very real way. Yeah, New York, LA, all the major cities. Um, I think they said every every state, all every 50 states. state mm-hmm. has had a protest or like a rally. Um, and for that, I'd, I'd listen. Let me tell you something. I am giving a huge shout out to my people. Um, we are doing it. We are doing the damn thing. We are making our voices heard. We are doing what we should have done, you know, and I've, I've said this before, um, COVID, you know, the silver lining is that we have to see everything. Right. You know, we can't, we, we can't like do it and then go out, buy a pair of sneakers, chill out, go to the club and be like, yo, I forgot about what happened yesterday. We have to see everything. So in celebration, I'm not going to play this too long, but uh, we, we, we definitely in a revolution. So tell them, Kurt, tell them, Kurt, tell them, Kurt. Laura's like watching, like it has to be 30 seconds. You cannot play 30 seconds more. They have no, they can take nothing. They can take for this all of it. We have nothing. Board. This is only the first episode. <laughs> it's only the first of many. <laughs> I just I like to play with the sounds, man. I see this. Um, you know what? We gotta get the pop 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 pop. We gotta get that for you. That Jamaican Bronx joint. 233rd Street. Bro. Yeah, you need that. You need that. All the Bronx people. That's what um Laura reps over here. Hard. Strong, strong Bronx people in the house. Um but the reality so, of the protest is that we're protesting police brutality and the murder of um, black and brown people, and it's happening at the protest. It's yes. happening outside of the protest. Yes. Where it's like people recording police brutality, and they're looking at the camera, and there's no remorse. There's no, right. let me pull back. Right. It's full force. Right. Um, what was that? A Brooklyn teenager in Canarsie, Brooklyn. Yeah, we just looked at that. Just, it's not something that I expected to see. I saw like a two-part video of just like the first interaction and then right. the crying out right. to see six or seven officers like pin this kid down and seeing in other social media outlets that their rationale was they didn't know he was a teenager or right. I think it was that. Um, I think the kid is sixteen. Um, don't quote me on the facts completely, but I believe the kid is sixteen and. The excuse was he was tall, and I couldn't tell that he was a 16-year-old kid. Right. Um, let me tell you something. I can tell the difference between a 16-year-old kid right. and a 30-year-old. Every once in a while, you may get it wrong. I got you. But as a police officer, um, you, you, you should right. check. Like, did you check his ID? Did you, you know what I'm saying? Like, there, there are protocols. And are, are these protocols... Are we acknowledging them? Are we doing them? Are we taking like? Are we literally abiding by the things that we are taught? Or are we just going and like? But I keep saying we. I'm not a cop, so I'm not saying we. Are you <laughs> just going in and, and doing? We as a system. Are yeah. we? Are we holding the system that we're all a part of the matrix that we're all a part of accountable for what's happening? Right. Right. But then on top of that is the the bias that people hold. That if you are assuming and overaging our black youth and saying that's rationale for you to treat them in such a brutal way, it's frightening. And then the police state that we live in currently because of like lockdowns and like curfews in New York City and across the country, that it harms black and brown communities. It harms our youth. Because youth by nature are going to be rebellious. And this young man, he wasn't even being rebellious. I'm not going to say that's an excuse. He was coming home from work. Right. Right? And that's what you're told you're supposed to do. You're supposed to work and come home. And regardless of what happened in between, it didn't warrant seven people jumping on top of him. Right. Um, and then you, And then you combine that with the fact that these are the people we have policing schools. You know, we have, right. we have NYPD in our schools. Right. So how do you reconcile that this is the same police force, whether it's a different division or not, who can't tell the difference between a teenager? These, these officers in this department is training another department of division school safety mm-hmm. to like to do this work. Right. Right. So how do we how do we do better? How do we? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And I was talking to another officer earlier. Um, and he made the statement of how 
you know, it's traumatic for kids when you go into a school that has, um, they have the the scanners and, and all that stuff for you to go into school. And he's like, yo, imagine this kid who's coming from this low-income house and his, his family, you know, his mother or father has to go to work early. And then after that, he has to take care of his brothers and sisters before he goes to school and feed them and get them to school and then do all this stuff. And then next thing you know, has to get to school on his own and right. then has to wait in line so he can walk through a scanner uh, to see if he has any weapons on him. He's like, the thought of that, the thought of going through that, right. that's traumatic and it sticks with you. Right. You know what I'm saying? These things that we're putting these kids through. Um, and I get it. Maybe it was it was done at a certain time when schools are way more violent and things like that. But now, like, there's, there's got to be a better way. But where does violence come from of that sort? No one goes, is born and thinks, let me commit crimes. Let me do this right. because this is what I want to do. It right. comes from a deficit. It comes from um, lack of community resources, not enough right. social workers, not enough living wages within communities. Right. The cost of living in New York alone, it's not, do- it's not doable. Ridiculous. And we're just talking about New York, but if you even take it into a rural space, like it's, it's even harder because you have fewer resources. You may not have an ambulance near you or a hospital and like you're you're in a bad position. Why don't we give what people need so they don't have to resort to perceived crimes? Right, right. right. Um, when really they're just survival tactics for a lot of people. Literally are just survival tactics. Or not even survival tactics. It's a, a shadow economy, right? Man. Of making things work for them because the other economy, the other system didn't work. Right. And because of that, here we are and stuck. And now we have these old things. But, you know, I'm glad that the youth, because the reality is this is this protest, these protests, these, these marches, this is the youth. This is the young people coming together and saying, yo, like, and it's it's been happening for years where it's like, and they've been saying it, hey, young people are going to come in and they're just going to change everything. Right. Some things we, we can... We can agree on this. This being definitely one of them, you know, the wearing of like really, really skinny jeans. I'm not with. Um, I could not, you know, like the skinny jeans and. You have the figure for it. You can do it. I can't. I can't because I got this gut that I've developed. Body. My quarantine body is like, it's bad. Be body positive. Whatever uh, body that you have is the right body. I don't know. I need to drink more water. Yeah, I gotta, right. gotta drink more water and do some push-ups in the morning or something. You know, but you know my quarantine body and allowing it. But like the skinny jeans, I, I you know I didn't agree with for a long time. Um, you know, I, I I can't even think of there's so many things. The haircuts, the clothes. It's playing your position in the revolution, right? Yeah. So it's like your knees ain't that good. You can't be marching. So let yeah, let them do man. that, and you can support in other ways. And yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I try to take my pictures, and I haven't I haven't gone out much yet. I'll admit it. I have to I have to get out there. Um, because I definitely want to capture some photos and capture these moments. These are important moments that um, are going to play out in history. This is it. You know, the one thing that I did not agree with um, during this whole thing mm-hmm. is uh, the Democrats coming together with Kente Close that they got from the African market on 116th Street. It looks like an HBCU graduation. I'm wondering. And it was confusing. Who, who are the assistants that went to go get those things? Were they black? Because I feel like they were because they had to know where to go. It was like, we in D.C., all right, we're going to head down the DMV. We're going to find some shop. Like, what barbershop did you go and get them Kente clothes Google from? is a beautiful place and a terrible place because you can order anything. Amazon, we know, is the devil. You can order anything oh off there. Oh, my God. But it was a poor decision, and I've said it to you before, that this is why you need a black person in the room so you can say, you know what? Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris. I can't, sis, I love you. I cannot pronounce your name. Harris was there. And? She, she took a knee. She did. Because she's problematic. Yo, she's listen. problematic. She was like, "Yeah, this is this is what we're this is great." I mean, but the, let me tell you something. The the memes were amazing. The one with the my parents are coming over <laughs> and they're black. They had one, and I don't know if he really did this. Um, Chuck Schumer, where he had he was in like the b boy stance behind. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I thought, you know, listen, hey, I get it. Um, I had a good laugh. I don't really think much of it. It's, um, peak, it's peak whiteness and whiteness not meaning like a skin color, but a mindset of, you know how we're going to fix this? Kente cloth. Instead of leg- legislation, instead of a plethora of other things, Kente cloth, kneeling like we're Wakanda. 
what are, what are we doing? I don't know, but I had a good I had a good chuckle from it. <laughs> I had a nice little chuckle. Um, I, yo, listen, if you like it, I love it. It's ignorant. <laughs> it's ignorant. There's no like um, they tried. You di- you didn't try. That's the problem. <sighs> or it's the thought that counts. You have to think to make it a thought that counts. Yeah, I that can't. wasn't. It was poorly executed. It was terrible. <sighs> it was like kente cloth. Drew Brees. It it was just going down the line of people just do, making poor decisions. Speaking of Drew Brees, um, it's just it's so funny that you know he said his comments and all these things are going on. And like somebody said, you know, Colin gave you the peaceful protest. Right. He took the knee. Y'all offended. Um, and then you know everybody was oh he's the worst. He's disrespecting the flag and. You know, the president, you know, he had his he had a, a field day um, with that whole thing. And so now here we are. All this stuff is going down mm-hmm. and it's like y'all could have took the easy road out and just respected what Callan said, right. like respected or respect what he was trying to do. Acknowledge it, because now the NFL is like, oh, we support you and la da da. So listen, are they going to give him back pay? Are they going to pay him from the endorsements well, you know he that he, he sued? Right. Did he win? They, yeah, but for undisclosed amount. I think it was like $30 million low key. That's not but enough. Like, it definitely wasn't. All the contracts he missed out on, the effigies he was burned in. Like, yep. what, what money are you really going to run me? This apologies was empty. It was empty and is well timed because how many of your players are black and tired? Listen, um, I think they're second to the NFL. Maybe, yeah. They're, they're, I mean, second to the NFL, excuse me. Second to the NBA. I think the NBA is the largest black league. And I think they might be right behind it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's crazy. And yeah. Um, but corporate is like corporate, you know, emails that you're getting and public statements are, are showing that the emptiness of actions, right? Yeah. So how can we avoid that? In other spaces, in education and um, police reform or abolishing the NYPD or police departments in general, you know, because if we're talking about protests, we're protesting based on police brutality. That's the current thing. There are other like systemic things that we also want to tear down as we're tearing Mm -hmm. those things down. But if we're talking about this thing happened because of this, how do we not make it an empty, you know, statement of we're going to because Minneapolis you know, they're taking away their uh, I think PD. they committed to that yesterday. They committed to it, right? Cam- the Camden did it a, like a little while ago, mm-hmm. I think a few years ago. And their crime rate dropped by, what, 50%? 50%. Yeah. 50%. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you know what? I think a lot of people, and that's what we're going to talk about today, um, defunding the police. Um, we have somebody who is a former police officer, brother Del- DeLacy Davis, um, who we're going to have call in in a little while and discuss these things, these topics of policing and what the funding of the police looks like and all that stuff. Because I think there's some confusion around it. Um, there are definitely a lot of questions that's going down and, and, you know, trying to figure out, look, is it is it moving money from the police to, you know, social programs and services for the community? Or is it like, yo, like, I, I'm not putting as many police on the street. I'm taking your money and, you know, How's that going to go down? So that's something we're discussing today. That's the topic of today's discussion. We're definitely getting into that. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a good convo. I think we have a lot to learn. You know, a lot of times people say and do things and we go in with no knowledge of it, you know, not completely understanding it. So we just want to kind of give a breakdown, let you guys know what we know, what we've learned, what we've researched, and talk to this good brother and find out some words of... um, wisdom, encouragement, and, and find out what the real is from somebody who's been on the inside. So I think that'll be a good call and a good discussion. You want to take a break here and then we'll come back? We can definitely do that. Uh, we're going to be black on the air. You like that black on the air? Nah? It's too, brother and Tume and them from back in the day on public access radio. You don't like that? You're selfish. That's your problem. I was born in 98. I don't okay. know. You're selfish. See? Um, we're going to be black. Uh, we'll, we'll be back. Right. We'll be mm-hmm. back. Yeah. All right. All right, y'all, we're back, we're back, we're back, and we have the good brother, Brother Sergeant DeLacy Davis, um, retired police officer um, for 
the East Orange, uh, was it East Orange, Doc? That's correct. East Orange police officer. Um, and he is here with us today. He, he came through in the clutch. I had a good friend who um, plugged us together literally 12 hours ago or 24 hours ago. I'm sorry. Um, and, and Doc came through in the clutch to answer some questions for us on some things that, you know, we need education on and we want to educate our audience on as far as the things that's going on, as far as these protests, um, police brutality, how we can learn about what's going on with defunding the police, some some questions we may have, and just trying to get a better understanding of everything going on. So give a little shout out to the good doctor. How you doing today, Doc? I'm good, brother. Thank you. Peace to you and our sister there in the studio. Thank yes, you for yes, the opportunity. Yes. I'm above ground and thankful and grateful to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so what called you to be a police officer? That's like something that we often like in the black community, it's not like a first a first stop, you know? So I became a police officer to finance my music career. No other reason. Um, I'm a percussionist. I play congas, bongos, and all the percussion instruments, anything that makes noise. And I wanted something stable. I had a game plan by 19. I was looking for houses. I figured if I found a job that could do what I needed to do, I'd be in pocket. I started, I went to college, came home from college and started teaching at Arts High School in Newark. I was a graduate of the Performing Arts High School, went in as an art student, came out as a music student. I taught there two years. I taught math while I was there. And while there, I was still doing my music and I decided, let me see if I could become a police officer. Um, became a police officer in 1986. I had a game plan that I would only stay five or 10 years. Uh, in right. the first six months, I saved every paycheck. I bought a house in the first six months. I used one rent to pay for studio time, one rent to pay the mortgage, and one rent for the bank. Wow. But so I you fell hustled. in love with, oh, I had a plan. It was working. I was 23 years old when I came on the force. Wow. But I also fell in love with black and brown people while there, which left me there for 20 years. So do you think the recent talk about defunding um, police departments? A little kinda, louder, Laura. Do you think that the um, current talk and discussion about defunding police department is causing um, anxiety for black and brown officers who may have that same story that you do around they, they went in to have stability and to help their community and they're attached to that idea. Um, what are your thoughts around that? Well, I think that officers that don't have anything other than the police department, absolutely it causes anxiety and, and probably should. You know, I'm the founder of Black Cops Against Police Brutality, which I founded in 1991. And so our position has always been that our white counterparts would never, ever do what they do if black and brown officers stood up and challenged them. We know who the brutal officers are. We know who the, the officers are lacking compassion in a police department. But very often, because it's a closed shop, there is a blue coat of silence. There is a wall. And because we're afraid to tamper with the bricks in the wall, we go along to get along. Right. So talking about like the bricks in the wall and the, the blue wall of silence, police unions and like, you know, sitting in New York City and, and we understand how that the police union here functions. And oftentimes when they're making public statements, how venomous it is and not just venomous, but it's directed towards black and brown communities and what their perceived actions are. Um, how, what role do you think police unions are going to play um, and potentially undermining any defunding of police departments? Ask that question one more time. You're echoing, so I'm not getting all of what you're saying. So my question was around police unions. Uh -huh. how, how do you think that they may or may not, especially like in a, a city like New York City, where oftentimes the police union can be venomous in how they speak publicly and publicly about black and brown communities and their perceived poor actions. How do you think it could potentially undermine any type of police reform in large cities? You said, how do I think it, it will undermine the culture of policing in large cities? Is that the question? Well, no, the, the defunding of police departments, like you can't have a police department without a, a union. So how do we reconcile that with the union potentially not being in support of that defunding? The union, because yeah, I wasn't hearing you. So, well, there are a couple of things. First of all, unions are doing their jobs. And I'll tell, I tell our community this when we're deciding how we want to do battle with police departments. 
A union generally is a 501c4, which is a nonprofit, and the difference between the C4 and the C3, which other community nonprofits, um, community groups in our community are, the C3 provides most of its service to the community at large. A C4 provides most of its service to its membership. And so inherently, just in that structure, it is not going to be the union's function to protect the community. And I tell the community that. And so when we begin to understand that, we understand the hostility that we're met with by the police union. Additionally, the police unions are a lobby. And so they're across this country. They are paying into campaigns, whether it's the district attorney, it's the state's attorney. They're literally picking winners and losers and picking sides. And so I see the, the union as problematic for our community. I see the police as problematic for our community relative to defunding. Um, when I look at the conversation that's going on around defunding, it is going from the, I think, the extreme of taking all of the money from a police budget, disbanding police forces, and people figure out what they're going to do, to reducing police budgets and utilizing those resources for other quality of life concerns like mental health care, like homelessness, like education, and those things we're supportive of. Relative to defunding, the only city that I'm familiar with that has actually disbanded a police force um, in recent time has been Camden, New Jersey, which is I'm in New Jersey, but they still did not, they disbanded the force, but they replaced it with a county force, and they made all of the officers reapply for their positions, of which I think a third or two-thirds did not get rehired. So I think communities have a right to decide how they're going to be policed, whether or not they want to be policed, and whether or not they want to defund the police. But I also think that when we make those kinds of decisions, we need to be clear that I have some cousins, literally, Pookie, Peaches, and Ray Ray and them, who hope that communities don't have police forces because they still have to be protected by someone. Right. So question, when you think of like um, a large force like the NYPD, Right. Mm -hmm. How does that look? Right. Like the NYPD says, all right, fine, we're going to we're going to break down our police department and start over. Is it, is it that they keep some like what what would be the process for that? In my mind, I think that that's a process determined by each community. Right. Um, so I know that um, the Grand Council of Guardians, which I used to represent them in the National Black Police Association as the regional president. And I covered eight states and New York was one of them. And so New York. The black police organizations in New York were under the Grand Council of Guardians, as well as some of the Latino associations and Latinx now. However, um, they had a plan some years ago called TBOC, Take Back Our Community. And the idea around TBOC in New York was that each borough and each community in New York City would determine what they thought their needs were. And that is the foundation for community policing. So it's not the police imposing on the community what it looks like, but it's the community sitting down and saying, as a co-equal partner, this is what we think we need. So in some communities, for example, when we're on a food desert, they may need a store or a bodega or the corner store to stay open around the clock because it's the only way we're getting the goods from a store. Whereas in a community where there's a supermarket, well, then it's a different need. And I think community leaders and, and, and residents should make that determination collectively with other decision makers and deciders who are formally elected to office and or to run these departments. Now, if I had to pick, for example, I live in a, a section of Newark where I don't see officers walking a beat, but I lived in this community all my life. And so I was here when I was a police officer. I'm here retired. But I have a relationship in the community. So I imagine, as I did when I went to East Orange as a brand-new rookie officer, was, one, you need to get to know the community because they pay your salary. And that was my attitude the entire time on the career in my career. So if I went to a home, for example, and I can remember people saying, well, listen, I don't want to keep you that long. I said, don't worry about it. I get paid by the year. And I got six more months left on this year. So take as much time as you need. Now, that was counter to what the police dispatcher wanted because they want you running from call to call. And what I wanted to do and where I developed an expertise was in getting to know people. So when I moved up in my career and became a sergeant and commanding a community policing unit, I made it my business how do you measure an officer's effectiveness and success if they're not making arrests, if they're not taking guns off the street and drugs off the street? You've got to change the paradigm. And so I wanted to measure my officers by them knowing the leaders in a community, formal and informal. So the, the, there's got to be a paradigm shift 
in terms of the relationship and the role that the police play. So they have to go from being police officers and law enforcement officers to sentinels and peace officers. Right. Peace officers is the word that that everybody's uh, saying now or what it should be. So with that in mind, um, to your understanding, what are people actually looking for right now? Like, or let's say it this way, where do we start? Well, I think again, and, and I'll, so yesterday I had a long, a three hour conversation with a sister in Victoria, Texas, who identifies as Mestizo. <laughs> and we were talking about just this because she, she, they called for a march. It looked for 200 people and a thousand showed up. And so now they're trying to figure out, whoa, what do we do now? So the first thing we do, and this would be the same thing under community policing, we use what's called the Sarah model, scan, analyze, respond, and assess. It's a problem-solving approach. What are the challenges in the community? What do we think are the priorities? And what do we want to address first? And then you design based upon that. So and I, let me just take an area. Um, at one point, I was in East Orange, and we had a group home down the street with lots of kids in the group home, no activities for them. They obviously don't have parents. And, of course, they wanted to do something with them because all they were doing was running away and, and hooking up with nefarious folks. I mean, now, ultimately, I wound up adopting one of the young people from there. And nice. she was 12, 12 years old when I adopted her. She's now 33 and doing well. But what we did was we designed programs that they wanted and that they felt that they could engage in. I was able to, at that point, based on that model, just that in one little area, get Corazine was the senator of New Jersey at the time. I took seven young people and their parents down to D.C. We were able to get a $1.5 million earmark and then put a committee of 20 young people from across the city to determine how that money would be spent for them. Now, that's very different than what people are used to doing, especially with young people. They're not used to empowering young people and letting them make decisions. Right. I think they should, and I think it's important. And if young people are not at the table, then certainly it's a failed plan. So talking about um, young people, policing in schools. So New York City and a lot of large cities use their PDs to train and um, essentially house those security officers. Um, in a city like New York, where police are in schools in a very real way, and it um, can often feel like a police state at some times, how do we, you know, there are calls to withdraw NYPD from our schools. What do you think that would look like? What can we replace them with instead? Wow. So let me try some of it. That's a big question. But so I do. I have been doing a program in East Orange even after retirement called A Day with Dad and Me or Donuts with Dad. And I go in and do a one-hour workshop on a Thursday, second Thursday of the month at 9 o'clock in the morning. The PTA pays for breakfast. The fathers or father figures of a family come in. We do a one-hour workshop based on topics that they've identified that they want to do over a nine-month period. And that's the day. But one of the things that I did, taking from that when I was running a charter school at one point in New Jersey, was to bring fathers in and men in. I didn't have a security guard, right? We brought in, I didn't have a police officer. We had men doing security who were the fathers and the father figures of the young people coming in. We had people from the neighborhood coming in. For those young people that didn't have a dad, I would say to the mother, then have the pastor come in, have the imam. You don't have them have the garbage man come in. But we thought it was important for young people to know that there was some man in my community that cared about my safety and well-being. Uh, I'm not necessarily a fan of um, school resource officers, only because if you don't put a round peg in a round hole, you get a problem. So if you put a person in the school in a uniform with a gun and a badge who doesn't like children, that's problematic. And what you've done is you've moved our young people closer to being criminalized. And so if you're now being arrested at school where you're expected to make mistakes, where you're expected to, to stumble and a, barring you doing something that is criminal in that bringing a gun, murdering, stabbing someone, now a regular fist fight that happened in school for decades now gets you a criminal history. And now we reduce your, your opportunities for success in the future. That is problematic. So I think that and again, each community gets to define this for themselves. But if I had a magic wand, it would be to bring first those who love our children into the schools, those who claim to be fighting for children and advocates for children into the schools. And then I would ask young people how they want to move about in their school. 
because I've gone into Ghana. I used to go to Ghana, West Africa, every two years. And so when I went to Ghana, they had young people securing their own schools. Now, that's different for this country, but they were still, it was taught very early. And so there was no problem with young people guiding us when we went to school and telling us where we needed to go. They were respectful, but they were in control of their environment. Absolutely. And that's true community um, care. I don't even want to call it yeah. policing because policing in, in the space of school has negative connotations, right? Um, yes, yes. And knowing that, are not potentially, but very realistically, we're creating pipelines to prison and jail and just, you know, lack of thrive or not, uh, ability to thrive, you know, no ability to thrive because we are putting young people into such early contact with police mm -hmm. and um, law enforcement. Um, and then there's the lack of privacy issue that goes with it, that there are no private spaces for black and brown youth to feel like they can make those mistakes, right? You alluded to that, That's that right. this should be a place where they're teenagers or, or young people that you are gonna make mistakes. And oftentimes those mistakes that our youth make are criminalized. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. So the, the, the young people that I adopted and my mom helped me raise, for example, one was 12 years old, um, drinking, smoking marijuana. That's how I met her. Another I met at 11 years of age, um, stealing and stabbing the mother. And, and at 16, I adopted her. Um, the young man that I took in, um, he was having sex with all the girls in the, in the middle school at 12 because he didn't understand the dynamic of his mother and father separating his mother with a woman. And he reacted very differently to that. So all of those things, if there was a school resource officer, would have been criminalized. I agree. But because we were operating from a different paradigm at that time, and my chief believed in the philosophy of community policing in that we're solving problems together. So we called in the parent. We, if there was a conflict or a fight, we were de-escalating the fight. And barring weapons being used, we'd call everyone into the room to try to negotiate a settlement as opposed to creating a criminal record for young people. Because, again, you're right. You're now in their personal space. If you're in the community and you're being repressive and now you're in, your, in the school and you're being oppressive, then there's no safe place to go. And it is a pipeline, which is why I, I'm not a fan necessarily of um, school resource officers. That's deep. Um, so to circle back, right, um, as far as what you hear and what you see in a community, do you see any fear of trepidations uh, from folks in your community about policing or like, do you feel like the police may be over-militarized? Oh, absolutely they're over-militarized. There's no reason for a police officer in the 21st century to have a tank in a community. Right. They don't ride tanks in, they don't ride tanks in suburbia. Right. They're not riding tanks on Long Island. And so the question becomes, why, is, why are there tanks in our community? Um, why is there a low threshold for tolerating our community, the people in our community, why? Um, I think because folks are they're they're being trained in some instances like warriors, right? And in places where departments aren't training them, they're training themselves as warriors. And, and, and so the the that's why I understand the defund the police movement. I just am not clear as to what people are what they're actually asking for, and not sure that they're necessarily clear. But certainly they shouldn't be militarized. If you come into my community, you've got on brogans, you're in all black. You got boots, you got gloves on. I mean, you look like you're ready for war. Right. And so there's no engaging that. I mean, I didn't join the police force because I like the police. As I told you, I joined for very selfish reasons. However, at the end of the day, this is why black and brown police organizations were founded. Because by 1972, black and Latino officers were catching hell in police forces, period. And they still are. The problem is that many lack the courage to come forward because that takes courage in and of itself, because you will spend maybe the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years ostracized, especially in NYPD. I mean, Michael Dow, 2009, testified before the Chris Marlin Commission, and that was the that, that unit, that drug unit, that was they were robbing drug dealers, they were robbing people, they were committing all sorts of crimes and criminal acts. Right. And when he testified before the commission, he said, we were the police. Who was going to stop us? Mm. Do you think... <laughs> <laughs> That's deep. Who, where the police, and who's going to stop us? Which is the fear of interacting with police officers. A lot right. of times, I know it is for me. It was just like, how far is this going to go, and who are they going to believe? Right. Because in the time that we live in, when everything is being recorded, 
and you see the brutality of someone looking into the lens and not letting up on someone's neck on, you know, recently there was a teen brutalized in, you know, Brooklyn, that he, they were being recorded and they still stormed and stomped this kid out. Like, how do we, how do we reconcile those things? Before you answer that, though, I have a quick question. In, in the same respect, if an officer is doing these things and they see a camera, is it that they just don't care? Like, oh, well, I have a union, so it doesn't matter. Like, what goes through the mind of an officer when they see a camera, yet they're brutalizing or What somebody? can you speculate? Because I, 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 I'm assuming, not assuming, you're not that, you were not that type of guy. Right. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you clarified, because my answer was getting ready to say, I don't know, you'd have to ask. Right. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad you cleared that up for us, for him, Lord. Um, I don't know what's going through their minds. What I do know, and, I, and as you were talking, I wrote down a lack of accountability. Right. What I recognize is that if you paid a price, if you lost your home, if your homeowner's insurance was attached to the, the claim as opposed to the taxpayers paying the bill when you get sued, if you were put off the force, if you were shunned like the officer that, that speaks out against a brutal officer or a criminal officer, if you were shunned the same way that officer is being shunned, you behave differently. It is the culture of law enforcement that is problematic. And so we have to hold them accountable. Uh, I, I worked on a case in the 90s, late 97s. Um, Malik Jones was chased by a police officer from East Haven, Connecticut, into New Haven in a car chase. And eventually the officer jumped out the car, smashed the window, trying to pull the keys out, all on a motor vehicle. And he wound up shooting Malik 19 times. And what the officer said was that Malik gave him a defiant go-to-hell look. So he shot him in the chest. And that's and, and that's enough for people. And that's enough for people to yeah, hear and, that I felt threatened. That someone who's supposed to be a absolutely. trained professional can have a moment of lapse judgment, and not even lapse judgment, but being afraid to to work in communities, to work with people, and and be afraid. That that's like being a teacher afraid of your students. I mean, it, it's not the best comparison, but you were an educator. That's like going into a classroom and being afraid. You're not going to service those students yeah. like a. Absolutely. And, and I agree, which is one of the reasons why I know in California they're moving to change the standard for use of force from reasonableness to necessary, which you still need to be clarified. But we're talking about really the federal law around qualified immunity, which essentially does not allow a 2020 look back at the officer's behavior, but it's to the point that you just made. What was his thought at that particular time? And so, of course, when it's black and brown people, I'm in fear of losing my life because I've always maintained that I believe that my white counterparts are scared of us to begin with. So I'll take that off the table. I believe you're scared. And they act like they're scared. And so it is that fear that is a problem. But for me, again, which is why I'm so I push so hard on black and brown officers. Why won't you speak up? Why aren't you speaking up? Do you understand that these children look like your children and my children? Right. Why can't you find your courage and pick it up off the ground and use it? Right. So does this come down to recruiting more black and Latino officers or is it about bias training? Um, Lord, Lord, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going, I'm going to go down this road with you for a minute. All right. So I, I'll say this to you. Um, you've got family members like I've got family members, and we know which one of them are special. Right. You don't have to go through a training to figure it out. Why y'all laughing, right? You don't have to go through a training, right? You don't, you don't have to go to school to figure out who's special in the family, right? You don't have to get a report. You know when cousin so-and-so come in, everybody purse. moves away from cousin so-and-so. Right. Likewise on the police force, right? It's a lack of accountability. You can't untrain the racist. They already know who they are, and we know who they are. Mm. But if you don't hold people accountable for behavior modification, then they keep doing what they're doing. You know, we have in uh, my public administration training, we have leadership models. And one of the things that we say in the mantra is what gets rewarded gets done. Mm. It's just like raising children. It's the developmental psychology that we use with children. Okay? So if you give young people positive reinforcement and you ask them to do certain things and you, and you highlight the things that they're doing well, they'll do more of it because they want to add a boy and add a girl. Well, likewise with the police. If you reinforce my bad behavior, why would I change? What you permit, you promote. Right? That's right. That's exactly right. 
and, and so I, when people talk about training, I smile because I go, I mean, I'm, I'll be happy to take a $5 million um, contract like New York City PD just gave away to um, a training group to come up from Florida and to train them on implicit bias. Hmm. Florida? <laughs> of all places, really? Florida. <laughs> right, really? I mean, you're right, because, because how much training are we really going to do? It, it's back to what you just said about the teacher that comes in and scared to death of the student. If you don't like the student and you're scared of the student, you can't teach the student. And so if you don't like me as a resident or part of this community, if you're afraid of me, you cannot provide service to me, period. And so no amount of training is going to give you courage, right? The best thing I can tell them is you need a heart, you need, you need a brain, and, and you need, what was that other thing they needed? Some courage, right? So you need the Wizard of Oz, but what you don't need to be is in policing. Right. And Richard Pryor can't save you from that. Um, no. <laughs> so in your no. mind, oh, go ahead, brother. I'm sorry. No, go ahead, brother. I'm, I'm here. In your mind, and as far as you can see it, and I know this is a, a far-off question, um, what's the future of policing? Like, what happens? Like, we have this whole world-changing event. Everybody in all 50 states are marching. They want to defund the police, reorganize, and all this good stuff. Um, and all of it sounds amazing. But the reality is there are, there are going to be certain things that we can do and certain things that we can't do. So what, what is the future look like and you know how long do you think it'll take well i my grandma would say it won't be as long as it has been right it's mm. been about 400 years literally so we know 400 it won't take years. that long oh yeah absolutely um you enslave a people so we, let's let and i failed to do this in the beginning i apologize policing comes out of slave patrols right and so we have to be mindful of that although they we use rockstar robert peel as a model for policing the, the, the British didn't have guns, and they've only added guns to their arsenal in the last 10 or 15 years because of the people that they're dealing with to some extent. But we have not had a regard or a respect for the people that we're engaging. And so I think the future of policing is a forked road in that in some places policing will change because they're being forced to, because they're being threatened with either being defunded and or disbanded, and so they'll give some ground. In other places, policing will get worse because they will dig in, just as we just had in Franklin Township, New Jersey. We had a, um, a, a biracial young person led a demonstration this past week, and as they were walking two miles to the police station, they walked past a counter-protest, which was led by at least one correction officer, Caucasian, and they were shouting all sorts of nonsense at the group but they also had a white man on the ground and the, and the officer had his knee on his neck mocking the death of Mr. Floyd. Wow. And so with all that is going on, as you said, they're protesting in 50 states and the hard, the diehard racists are digging in mm. and they're on our police forces and in our military. And something that you said so, talking about slave patrols is that this is this this trauma, this fear, it lives it's on a cellular level. This isn't just like a, oh, I kind of heard this and saw this on social media, so now I, I'm enraged. This is something that's a really, it's a real feeling that crawls up your spine when you have to interact with law enforcement, law, air quotes, law enforcement. So, and, and should. I mean, it's, it's really dangerous at this point. And it's dangerous to the extent that so the young sister that reached out to me from Texas getting death threats. I haven't talked to anyone that's organizing a demonstration that is in public that's not getting death threats. Right. And so until police policing is not going to correct itself, the police can't police the police. Right. However, we have to create an environment where officers that want to come forward have the capacity, the ability, and the safety to come forward. And, and so one of the things I've often said is that just as you protect um, Sammy the Bull Gravano, Right. He killed 18 people, but you told him we'll forgive you on the 19th if you give us um, Gotti. There is no witness protection program for officers that want to come forward. I can remember, and I've testified against two different black cops in assault cases. But I remember the first time I went to Internal Affairs, within a half hour, the guy was chasing me around the station with his gun on. Because Internal Affairs gave him a wink and a nod to let him know that I was a complainant. That's crazy. That's crazy. And it goes back to where do we get... officer that was brutal. Mm. Brutal. Knocking people's teeth out. 
beating people handcuffed. And I made it very clear that if you do it in front of me, no, it's not snitching. I'm testifying. Right. I promise you. Because you don't have a right, and I don't give you permission to deny my child the opportunity to go to college. Because if I go to jail, that's what I, what's going to happen. She's not going to college. And anti-blackness, like, for everyone's understanding, isn't something that resides in the neighborhood of whiteness. It's something that, because of the diaspora and um, colonizing, it lives in all in all of our communities and all of our neighborhoods of this this anti-blackness that I need to do this to someone that looks like me before it gets done to me. And that's frightening, mm-hmm. too. Absolutely. And you're right to talk about this thing being, it's in our DNA, right? I, my grandmother was born 1901, died in 1982, the youngest of 10 children, and all her aunts and uncles were slaves. This was my mother's mother. I'm the fifth generation of my family hailing from Loudoun County, Virginia. Professor Gable Day is the first generation, 1818 to 1895. And so grandma made sure that we understood who we were and who we're supposed to be and represent. But it's in me because I could listen to her talk about the rape and the beating and the whipping. So I came on the police force very different. I worked for one of the blackest departments in the state of New Jersey and in one of the blackest cities in New Jersey. And I caught hell from black people because I could not remain silent. It is in our DNA. My grandmother and the family were driven from the South because grandma wouldn't shut up. My mother wouldn't shut up. And neither can I. Mm. I hear you. All right, Doc, we only got a few more questions and we'll wrap it up because I know you got things to do. Um, We appreciate your time. Um, No problem. So what are your thoughts on like a viable model of community policing? Um, and is, is that the answer, you know, community policing? And, and, you know, how does that look? So I'm going to be a little flippant first. I think we should police our communities the way we police white communities, mm. right? Um, it's really that simple. And it really is because we don't see the level of violence, the level of aggression, the level of we don't see any over policing in affluent white communities. Right. They don't tolerate it. They just don't tolerate it. And so so when I think of a viable model of community policing, I think of one of just simply fairness. Hmm. Let me put you out in that street without a gun, and let's see how you police. February 21st, 1995, Lawrence Myers was shot in the back of the head in Patterson, New Jersey, by a white police officer, shot him in the base of the skull, out the top of his head. They burned that city for three days. I was called by the family and the police chief, police um housing police chief Willie Smoot at the time to come into the community to talk to the youth. I said, only if they wanted me there. They invited me there. I spent six weeks on loan to that department. I promised the young people when I met with them, when I come amongst you, I will not come armed Mm. because I'm going to trust you just as I'm asking you to trust me. And so for six weeks, I would go into the street. My biggest fear was going into the precinct every day because the cops were spitting at me in the precinct every day. Wow. And that's the crazy part of of being called up, right? Being called into a space as a black person who really does care, then to carry that burden of the community and be a representative for for someone else, knowing the risk, right? Like often, like we've seen plenty of people, brown people, black people get, you know, put out in the spotlight of now's your time, you're relevant, you know, speak for us and let them know that we're good. And that's a hard position to be in, especially I can imagine in a situation like that where a young person's life was taken? It, it is a tough position, but I think what we have to be is honest, right? So the, for me, community policing in that instance was me being honest with young people. When we, when I, for three days, I sat in meetings and never said a word. And so finally they said, I'm sorry, Dave, you haven't said anything. I said, because all of you are getting together to talk about what the solution looks like, and all of you are older than me. So if you're going to get to a solution, you need people younger than me. And at that time, I might have been in my 30s, right? I said, you need people younger than me at this table helping to make decisions. So, of course, they said, Reverend, well, we agree. So so the Reverend said, well, they can come to my church. I said, the only, well, I'll only invite them to your church if you let them speak freely. Well, they can't be cussing, then we don't want to go to your church. So we wound up going to Paris and Eastside High School. Now, when they came, the police attempted to frisk them. So that caused a commotion. I had to go out there and take all the young people around the corner and put their guns into the trunk of a car. 
and then come back because I wasn't there to take guns off the street. Right. I was there with the blessings of the prosecutor from Essex County who was giving me backup. But we're not here to talk about taking guns off the street. Y'all are killing these kids and they want to protect themselves. So we were able to bring them in and let them talk about and articulate what they saw as a solution set. And of the 10 things that they identified before we left there, we were able to get seven to eight of them over that six-week period. That's important. And I think that that's what people in leadership miss. They don't want all these promises to do all these great things. Now, let's sit in the room and talk about what we want. They just want to be treated fairly. How about that? Right. And what you did was harm How reduction. About that? It's harm reduction. Absolutely. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to. We know what we're here for. We're not here for to take guns off the street, like you said. We're here to talk about this issue. You know, you're clearly not going to use them in this space, and I know why you have you have them. So we're going to put them here. Let's move forward with this conversation. Um, yeah. What is like the internal affairs process like? What is what is that internal process like? How? Um, should outside organizations be involved in it? Should they have a seat at the table to hold, you know, unions and cities accountable? So I'm glad you clarified because you first asked what was it like. I'm like, has she been following my career? Because I stayed in internal affairs, but I wasn't there working. <laughs> I was there under investigation, right? So I stayed under investigation 17 years of my 20. Um, so I think that it's a hard question that you ask, to be honest with you. I think that internal affairs could, if it functioned the way it's designed, to be very effective. Um, do I think that that civilians or outside organizations to be a part of it? That then becomes a civilian review board as opposed to an internal affairs, right? Because internal affairs is just that, it's internal. I think that, number one, if we're talking about the traditional structure of internal affairs, it should be moved away from the police department so people feel comfortable coming forward. I think that you should be able to report both anonymously and and um, online as well as in person. I think that people should be encouraged to come forward with information. In addition to that, uh, I'm also a supporter of, of the appropriately structured um, civilian review board, one that has subpoena power, one that is appropriately funded, and one that has investigative powers so that they can really get the job done as opposed to being starved because you don't have a budget, so you don't have enough investigators to investigate. Uh, we were just successful in doing that in January in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, Malik Jones's mother invited me up because the city now had put together a civilian review board. In Newark, where I was a part of the early runnings of developing civilian oversight, Newark has been in court now for the last year because they're being sued by the FOP to prevent them from having a civilian review board. But to your point, Laura, um, one of the groups that we started, um, the North Anti-Violence Coalition, in 2009, they have a permanent seat on the civilian review board, as does the People Organization for Progress and two or three other community groups, NGOs. So in that regard, it's excellent, which is why the union is fighting it, because it would always have the community for oversight in addition to other people that are on the board. Mm, right. And in talking about defunding and like these these very powerful, potentially powerful boards um, being starved because they don't have the budget. So in defunding right. and redirecting funds, that's a place where it yep. can be put to to help. Right. So I, I have Absolutely. a couple of, to end our interview, our conversation more so than an interview. I really do appreciate um, the time that you gave us today. Um, some statistics from ACLU. Um, from 2015-2016. There are 1.7 million students in schools with cops but no counselors. There are 3 million students are in schools with cops but no nurses. There are 6 million students that are in schools with cops but no school psychologists. And there are 10 million students in schools with cops but no social workers. So as we're talking about defunding, as we're talking about reconstruction and holding people accountable, understanding that the, the very people that we're trying to educate in the society to take over and to take up, you know, proverbial arms to carry on a legacy are, they're being starved of resources to thrive outside of um, law enforcement. So... Well, I, I would tend to agree. And I, I run a family support organization where we provide support services to parents of children with special needs, support education and advocacy. And we are parents with special needs children. So we absolutely understand and agree because in New Jersey, those are the kinds of things that we advocate for. And when we sit down in a child family team meeting, we're looking to make sure that if it's a special ed meeting, that all of those people who are supposed to be at the table are at the table and or we're showing you how to advocate and how to bring charges against the school district because they 
they fail to provide the appropriate resources. So we agree with you. Yeah. Doc, we really appreciate this conversation. This was this was more than we asked for. And um, <laughs> the information is, 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 is more than abundant. And it's, it's something that we will feed on and learn from. And, you know, I'm glad that you came and did this with us so we can share it with our people because, you know, lack of knowledge is, is, is probably one of our, you know, our worst things that we can have. And the fact that, you know, a lot yeah. of people have been calling for this, um, the funding, the police, yeah. and just getting an understanding of what policing is like. And for you to give us that insight, um, it's, it's, we appreciate it more than you can ever understand. Well, I'm thankful to you both. I thank you for the opportunity, and um, I love our community. So. Yes, yes, yes. And we will definitely be calling you for more conversations. We're going to have more questions. It's, it's going to be a lot. So we're going to build a relationship. We're going to get this thing going, and we, we really appreciate you. All right, thank you, and take care. And be thank safe. you, Doc. You too. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. So that was Dr. DeLacy Davis. Um, I learned a lot. Absolutely. I learned a lot and um, I'm in appreciation of, of, of his time. Um, we, we have to do better um, at knowing what we want and figuring out what we need to ask for. Um, because you know what, like he said, and like there's officers in there who are scared to speak up mm -hmm. and they've been in there for a long time. And, you know, being that he was one of the few that, that's actually spoken up. And like he said, his mother spoke up, his grandmother spoke up and he spoke up. The world is speaking now, right. you know, and now it's 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 on us, the Black Lives Matter and the black community and all these other organizations to continue to speak because we have a bad habit of going through this. And the next thing you know, in a couple of weeks, some joy and drops or a new TV show or a new though. movie. It's different. This feels yeah, different. This feels it feels different because we're in quarantine. Right. And then on top of that, everyone has a very short attention span. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is longer than most most dance challenges on, you know, on the Internet right now that they pick up steam and then they die out. Like I, die I have out. I have faith, you know, I'm this feels different. It's palpable in the streets. Um, people who are scared, who haven't been afraid mm -hmm. are afraid. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 So I didn't get a chance to do this, but round of applause for the good doctor. Um, and you know what? We're going to keep it going, man. As a people, we're going to keep it going. We're not going to be afraid. And um, this is it. This is our time. This is our time. And I hope we recognize that and continue to march forward because that's that's what, this is what Martin Luther King's dream was. This is it. This fight that we're doing right now, this is what he wanted. This is what Malcolm wanted to see. That we we, you know, we are standing up for ourselves and we're not going to take it. And the fact that we're doing this, it's been, I think they said, what, 10, 12 days of consistent marches around the country. There's been consistent marches in other countries. Um, I think they said 74% of the nation is in agreement to Black Lives Matter. Which is crazy when you think about the inception of Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. and how people felt about it and how... Yeah, as a terrorist, remember, I think, who called it a, a terrorist group? 45. Yeah, yeah, a terrorist group. So here we are now. So we're going to wrap up, y'all. It's been a real one. Um, I'm still a little down about some of the news I got, but this conversation that we had was very encouraging. Um, and I hope that we can deliver this news to you guys and this information. And I hope it's taken. I hope people take notes. They realize I played the episode again. If you have any questions, um, you guys can always email us and we can always ask our guest questions. We can also... You know, if you have more questions about today's episode, we can always email um, Dr. Um, Davis and, and, and get some responses for you guys. So if you want to email us, our email is the name of the podcast, which is blackboardjungle101 at gmail.com. Blackboard. Black, what did I say? Boy. I did not say boy. It's the <laughs> accent. No, I'm it's sorry. Black boy joy. I, I feel not, like I don't. All right. Anyway. Mm -hmm. um, Blackboard. Har duh, duh. From Harlem. What accent? Yeah, whatever. Uh, don't, don't, don't do that. Oh. It's from Harlem World, by the way. It's a world. It's not, it's not like. Uh -uh, uh -uh. Uh -uh. Is that what it is? It's a world. Got it. It's not, it's not, it's not a part of any borough. I want to also note his do-rag. I don't have a do-rag. Fox match right now, which is a very, very Harlem-esque, you know? I appreciate it. 
know what's like happening. Like velvet. It's flowing. Okay. Back out all, like you're from the east side. See, this, we're going to start doing video because I'm sick of this shit. I am. This, this right here, mm -hmm. we're going to start doing video. First, it was Beijing. Now I got to do rag on. Anyway, uh, we're going to wrap this thing up, y'all. Peace and love. Follow us on IG. IG. Twitter. Twitter. Our Twitter is the BB Jungle 101. You know what? I'm not even sure about Twitter handle right now. Yeah, because as you said it out loud, it felt weird. So it maybe felt a little weird, you know. So, we'll, so scratch that because saying it out loud and hearing it, it ah, we gotta get it right. Weird. It did. Did it feel weird? Mm -hmm, it did. Why did it feel it weird? It sounds like something you shouldn't Google. I'm not Google. First I, of all, you know what I mean. Like I'm not Googling our Twitter name. I definitely, definitely got it wrong. No, we're gonna have to edit that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know what? I'm gonna look it up. We're gonna put put it back in. I'm gonna punch it in. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna punch it in. Um, anyway, yo, it's been real. I appreciate this conversation. Episode one is down. In the can. We did this. We did it. Back for the first time. That might be the name of the episode. Back for the first time. Back for the first time. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about I didn't we didn't we didn't say anything catchy today to really say. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? We didn't say anything catchy. We'll figure it out. We'll take a listen, throw it back up. Um before we go, I keep clapping and there's an echo, so I shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Before we go, uh, big birthday shout out to the homie. <laughs> air, air, I don't have the air, air thing. Which is disrespectful. Um, no yeah, air horns. So, I'm from 225th yeah. Street. We can, we can just do that. That's um, weak. <laughs> That's weak. Um, Angie. Yeah. Shout out to Angie. She's turning 30 today. Uh, yeah. So, yep. Yep. We're going to stick with Monumental that. Monumental birthday. Yep. Yeah, that, that's it. Um, her calming force, you know. Yeah, Gemini season. Um, and it's Which a is big unusual one. for a Gemini. She's very calm for a Gemini because Geminis are a little problematic. But I'm Angie, a Gemini, so I don't you're know. You're problematic. I don't know what she's talking about. Um, but yeah, shout out to Ange. We, we, we love you. This is a big one. Gemini is the first birthday in quarantine. Um, so yeah, that's a little weird, but like, it's all good. You know, so uh, gonna do a little book of revelation. Oh no, we wasn't gonna. I didn't mean to do that. No, we're not gonna send Ange to church. Her mama, her, her mama, what in the Jesus name music is this? I don't even know. I was trying, never mind. I was trying to get the Stevie Wonder track, I can't find dun, it. Dun, 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 dun. But the black the happy like birthday, eight minutes long, yeah. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it's in like public domain. So if we played the full thing, it'd be fine. Yeah, no, I, like a hundred percent. I'm pretty sure. It's I mean, but classic. nobody's nobody's playing the whole song. It's eight strong. I think it's a it's a good. Why is it doing that? Oh, God. Here, we go. Here we go. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like the beginning of electric slide. Though. It does. We sure gotta just the... skip skip around. There you go, hey. Ange. Cut ahead. There you go. We found it. Ah. 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 Yeah. Uh, we're going to sign out on this. It's been a real one, y'all. We appreciate you. Blackboard Jungle. Do I keep saying boy? Blackboard Jungle. Okay, you say it because I'm not going to do it. Appreciate you all. Us. Your audio, your signal. Your it's, going, it's going up and down yeah. because he's in the back. Fix that. So this is Blackboard Jungle signing off, episode one of one. Word. We did it, y'all. Peace and love.